I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at CSIS. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we'll be discussing China's relations with Europe. What is the history of the relationship? How do Europeans view China? And what challenges and opportunities lie ahead? To discuss this and more are Maya and Verley Nouns. Maya is a senior fellow for Asian Security and Defense Policy at IISS in London. Maya's experience lies in Chinese cross-service defense analysis, China's defense industry innovation, as well as China's regional strategic affairs international relations. Relay is a senior research fellow at the International Security Studies Department of the Royal United Services Institute, RUSI, focusing on geopolitical relations in the Asia Pacific region. Her research interests include China's foreign policy, cross-strait relations, maritime security, and ASEAN. Maya and Verle, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us, Bonnie. Thanks, Bonnie. It's great to be here. So, what we're discussing today is China's relationship with Europe, particularly how Europe looks at China. So, I'd like to start with a more relatively background question on what has Europe's relationship with China historically looked like. And particularly, what drives European attitudes, views of China? Look, Europe's relationship with China over the past has really been dominated, I think, by a trade relationship and one of engagement with with China. And I think that stems from a couple of reasons. We all know, I think, now the long held, considered naive assumption that engagement with China, trade with China, would in some ways uh, down the road lead China to become less authoritarian and more democratic. And I think Europeans truly did believe that. And so um, Europe has tried to engage with China through various partnerships, whether at the EU level, but also, of course, um, in uh, bilateral ways uh, to try and bring that about uh, through the relationships. Trade, of course, has been really, really important to that bilateral relationship as well. Traditionally, um, China has been one of Europe's largest trading partners. Europe always exports less goods to China than it imports. In services, it's on the flip side. So Europe usually um, invests more in services in China than China does in Europe. And there is, of course, a trade deficit in some ways. But by and large, that trading relationship has driven, I think, how Europe has approached China on certain issues, perhaps at times being less critical of China. For example, with regards to issues around um, China's activities in the South China Sea or around Taiwan as well. And that trading relationship has been dominant in that bilateral narrative. I think that, however, is slowly changing over time. And it has also changed, particularly as China has become more authoritarian and perhaps that previously naive way of looking at China has has withered away a little bit. Yeah, I, I think that's, um, you know, I would uh, align uh, with that view and in that analysis of Europe. I think, of course, when we talk about Europe, there's various different layers to this, right? So there's the EU, there's European Union member states, and then, of course, there's also European states outside of the EU framework, for example, now the UK. And I think between these countries, um, you know, within that kind of general um, approach so far, I think we're seeing slightly different interpretations of what that approach should look like 
between those various layers. And that's where I think, um, you know, we've seen whether that be on, say, uh, calling China out on human rights abuses, whether that be on, uh, say, uh, you know, tackling Huawei in national systems or the extent to which you go um, when it comes to investment screening. Um, there are slight differences between European states. But I think overall, there there is a trend line there, as Maya has already outlined. In terms of the differences between European countries, are there examples of two countries that you would point to that, from your perspective, are have, are on different ends of the spectrum? Different ends of the spectrum. I mean, I think um, I think there are different kind of emphases, I suppose. So um, when we look at, say, I think there's been public reporting, for example, on, on a number of countries who were um, kind of deeply uncomfortable with with the human rights agenda in Europe, uh, on China, uh, or say on the South China Sea issue. Um, you know how how far the EU should go in responding to that. The final arbitration uh, results came out in 2016. Um, so I think there, you know, on the various kind of occasions we've seen, you know, Greece mentioned, you've seen Hungary um, mentioned. So there, there is a slight difference there, I think, in terms of concern. And then perhaps on, you know, the other side of that, you have countries like Lithuania, for example, who um, have, you know, been quite strong in their um, in their statements around China at the moment, particularly having suffered at the hands of, say, some economic uh, coercion stemming from Beijing. So in that respect, you do see you do see shifts. But I think it, it is interesting to kind of look more broadly at, say, actually, uh, as Maya has mentioned, that that withering um, appeal of China and the fact that, you know, the 117 plus one, as it was back in 2012, originally established, now 14 plus one, really indicates, I think, a shifting dynamic and a shifting realization of what China actually presents as an opportunity as much as it is one uh, of a challenge. Yeah, on that point on 17 plus one, it's, it's it's fascinating to look at that. I mean, you've seen countries in, in previously 17 plus one, now 14 plus one, kind of look to China for economic investment. And also, of course, interestingly, look into the grouping as a means to play a more significant role in EU foreign policy, which they otherwise said they felt they could not play. So almost to be interlocutors between the EU and uh, and China, which of course is not is not the point of having an EU foreign policy or an EAS uh, or to speak with one one voice. What I found really interesting is that countries in the grouping have in recent years responded quite differently to some of the challenges that we see China posing. So some have been very quick to work with the United States, for example, on that issue that Verla mentioned um, with regards to Huawei and the integration of Chinese network infrastructure into their national telecommunications uh, infrastructure. Some obviously valuing that relationship with the United States very strongly. I would put Poland, for example, in that category. Others still very keen on Chinese investment, and I would put Hungary, for example, in that category. So, so even within this grouping of fourteen plus one, we see we see differences, and it's about through which lens they view that relationship with China. Is it through their threat perceptions from Russia, or, and therefore their their need to keep the United States on side, or, or is it through a, an EU lens, or is it through you know a, a, just a general need for investment? I mean, there there are so many different ways that countries are justifying their relationships with China being different that I think it makes it difficult for the EU sometimes to come up with a China strategy that is one size fits all for for all the diverse actors across uh, the continent. 
that's a good segue into the question I have for both of you is that, is there an EU strategy towards China or is there an EU policy towards China? If so, what is it? And um, what are the most important factors that EU is taking account of which there is commonality among member countries? So I think there there is a strategy of sorts, but it's a strategy that um, was released in uh, 2019. And the way that it tries to find commonality is to define China in four ways as a partner, as a competitor, um, as a systemic rival, and as a country that the EU seeks to engage with. So there is a European Union strategy on China. Uh, It was a policy document that was released in 2019. And the way that it tries to find a a common uh, way to address China and to work with China is to look at China through a triptych of being a partner that the EU has to engage with and wants to engage with, uh, second of all, as a competitor, and third of all, as a systemic rival. And by using this triptych uh, and this approach, uh, the EU hopes to uh, appease countries that have different layers or different um, levels of engagement with China, but also, I think, to have a broad brush uh, strategy that does look at China in all the different ways that the EU as a whole sees China uh, as an actor in in the global international system. Now, coming up to 2022, there is a question about whether or not that policy needs revision, whether this triptych still works. Um, And I think from recent statements from um, the European External Action Service chief, so uh, HRVP uh, Josep Borrell, it's clear that the EU is not going to move away from this triptych, but um, there is a sense within the European Union that the emphasis of where China lies within that triptych is changing. So perhaps less of a partner and perhaps more of a competitor and systemic rival than previously thought in 2019 or the years before that. Maybe I can just jump in on um, the UK specifically as well, because I think Maya captured the EU perspective really well. I mean, I think in the UK, we've seen um, a real shift in, in the discussion around China, you know, 2015, you had the golden era, so-called, between the UK and China, where it was all about investment, it was all about, you know, deepening ties across the board, UK engagement and Belt and Road. And you've seen that really change in government, um, you know, with Prime Minister Theresa May, then Prime Minister Johnson, of course, Liz Truss, and now Sunak. We've seen, you know, a particular steady, I think, uh, clear-eyed approach where the discussion around China is really happening across various ministries. It's also particularly happening in Parliament. And more generally, you know, if you look at public opinion polling, around 69 to 70% of UK citizens have a kind of negative view of China. And that is for all the reasons that, you know, we've already spoken about, but then more generally also, you know, discussions around national security, which have really changed, I think, particularly since COVID as well, where I think we have understood that supply chains and resilience now really have to be at the heart of uh, government policy, and that that needs to be re-examined. And Ukraine, of course, underscores that even further and kind of ties into, say, you know, economic dependency on on Russia uh, in Europe. That has really, I think, cemented that uh, further. So I think, you know, Liz Truss was supposedly going to label China a threat. The UK so far has labeled it a systemic challenge. Um, I think that's very much kind of in line with the language that the UK's partners, be that 
in Europe or the United States and elsewhere use. We haven't seen that with Rishi Sunak. I don't think we'll see that. Um, in fact, he just gave, of course, a, a speech on the UK's China policy, where he um, mentioned that the so-called golden era is over and the UK would no longer be naive, that trade would just automatically lead to uh, a change in China, specifically when it came to the political system or otherwise. And that China, again, he underscored, presents that systemic challenge. So he has um, presented, uh, I think, a picture now of robust pragmatism. I think in effect, we'll have to wait and see what that specifically means. But that definitely, I think, has that component of internal domestic resilience in your own uh, economic and, and national critical infrastructure. Uh, and then also working with partners uh, on the international stage, particularly the United States. European partners, I would imagine, are included in, in that as well, but then also the Indo-Pacific region. So that shift has likewise been happening in the UK. Thank you both. With respect to both EU's views on China, to the extent there is a unified view, as well as the UK's views on China. It seemed like there's quite a bit of overlap and similarity with the US views, but also areas where there might be some differences. Um, From your perspective, are there particular areas that really stand out as having a larger gap between where the EU is and where the UK is on China and where the United States is? So I think here, The real difference is kind of getting at the heart of how you see the international order and how you see the challenges of today. Uh, And for the United States, I think this has landed on competition. Think of the national security strategy. You know, it was noted that China is the only competitor um, really able across the board to reshape the international order and that there is, of course, a, a concern that it is seeking to do so in its own likeness. And that I think... Within Europe, generally, I think there's still an emphasis on cooperation, on trade. As we've seen numerous times now, this statement of we want to continue to trade with China and we're not interested in decoupling is something that you continuously hear. And I think this really gets at the heart of, you know, how do we see the next 5, 10, 15 further on years uh, evolving? And what nature um, do you see China really embodying? Where do you think its ambitions lie? And here, I think we still have some differences. And I think that's quite notable when we then look at, say, the U.S. approach to export controls, particularly as we've seen in the 7th of October this year, uh, when it came to AI, semiconductors, uh, and supercomputing capabilities, and really an attempt, first, a recognition that China poses a significant challenge in these areas, particularly as it pertains to um, potential military and, and security application. And then secondly, that something needs to be done about this, and that that involves taking quite difficult decisions when it comes to export controls. I think we see Europe not quite being on the same page yet. I do want to mention one of the issues that I think both of you have touched on, which is Ukraine and China-Russia relations, as well as thinking about China in the context of what Europe faces given the Russian cha- Russia challenge. As Europe looks at China and China's position on Ukraine, its relationship with Russia, how has that impacted uh, European views of China? Has it become a lot more negative? And how has China's attempts, at least from my perspective, in the recent months to shift its position on Ukraine, how has that caused, if any, changes in Europe about perceptions of China? 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right to note this as an issue that has been driving European China policy in a certain way after COVID, after Xinjiang, after Hong Kong, and you know the various things that we've seen、um, happen domestically. Now China's relationship with Russia、um, following the February Fourth statement between、uh, Xi and Putin, I think, really brought home to Europeans that. Whatever they think their Russia problem is, it's tied to a China challenge as well. That this is a、uh, something that that really can't be、um, divorced from from one another. So it needs to be seen in in unison. And of course. China's initial resistance to criticizing、um, Russia, to condemning its war of aggression in Ukraine for promoting Russian propaganda and narratives,、uh, false narratives and disinformation about the、uh, war in Ukraine, all of that I think has further soured and highlighted that China challenge to to European audiences, and there were. Critical views of China in Europe as a result, as Verla mentioned before. I mean, this is a compounding, I think, effect of of sentiments that have started to shift. What I think it also did for Europe is it it opened Europe's eyes a little bit to what other flashpoints、um, Europe might need to be concerned about in the future. And here, I think, although we think the parallel with Taiwan and Ukraine is is not exactly a, a perfect one and and not a correct one to draw,、uh, at least for Europe, it was a realization. I think that one hard power is is back and perhaps here to stay. And second of all, that a conflict across the Taiwan Strait is not as impossible as perhaps they had thought it in the past. And so,、um, how Europe now looks at Taiwan, and how Europe needs to think about、um, not just security in the Euro-Atlantic, but security concerns in the Indo-Pacific, and how that is linked to European security, is now very much a topic of conversation on the continent and in the UK as well. Of course, I think there is a concern about European strategic autonomy, Europe, Europe's ability to defend itself,、uh, European defense industry being up to the challenge, of course,、uh, being a question. Uh, and also, of course, what a conflict in the Indo-Pacific would mean for the United States' ability to assist Europe in its own regional security concerns or issues. And so, all of this, I think, has driven forward concerns about China and the direction that it's heading in. What I would say, though, is that in recent months, there,、uh, I would agree with you, there has been an attempt、um, by President Xi, notably at the G20, but even before then, a little bit, to engage more with Europe, to learn. More about what Europe's positions would be on certain issues, such as what a European response might be to the use of a nuclear weapon、um, by Russia in Ukraine or elsewhere. What Europe's response might be in terms of sanctions to China、um, if there were a conflict across the Taiwan Strait. So, and there is, of course, you know, through these. Bilateral meetings, very much at the bilateral level between European leaders and Xi Jinping, there is an attempt, I think, to repair that relationship as China itself has become, or Chinese leadership has become, a little bit more frustrated with Russia's、uh, war of aggression in Ukraine、um, and the performance of Russia in Ukraine to date, and the potential implications of that on China through, for example, secondary sanctions. So I think there is an attempt to repair that relationship with Europe. Has it worked?、Um, I'm not sure it's entirely worked, but there have been some interesting developments. So. European leaders seem to still think they can play a special role in perhaps bringing China to a mediating table, as we've heard from President Macron of France, or to try to elicit some sort of concessions from from China、um, through bilateral meetings, as we saw with German Chancellor Scholz's visit to、uh, Xi Jinping in China. You know. 
at the end of it coming out and saying, well, China has agreed that they are against the use of nuclear weapons. So European leaders still think that they have some leverage in their relationship to be able to gain insights or concessions from Beijing that that others might not. Again, I don't think that that will completely overturn this trend that Verla mentioned about the negative uh, view of or the more critical view of China in Europe overall. Maybe I can just add to that, that I think, you know, when, when it comes to um, China's approach to Europe, I think it has always tried to engage at a bilateral level as well. That's something that it's always been very interested in. Uh, and of course, you know, the kind of move towards transatlantic unity that we saw, um, particularly in NATO as well, um, as a response to Russia uh, and the war in Ukraine, I think to China's mind, given also the discussions around the Indo-Pacific and greater European involvement in the region, that's something that I think China might not necessarily be interested in. So in that respect, you know, re-engaging with Europe has more uh, than just an element of we want a better relationship with Europe to it. Um, I think it also has a distinct element of we don't want Europe to necessarily side with the United States when it comes to their approach to the wider region and when it comes to their approach to us. You know, there is still a special relationship to be had with China that we can figure out. So from their perspective, I think as well, it's it's been interesting to see those discussions with European leaders, um, you know, as Maya has already mentioned. And I think when it comes to then um, specifically Ukraine, I think there was uh, potentially an expectation, not necessarily just in China, but I think this is a a sentiment that we've seen more widely in in the Indo-Pacific as well, that Europe is going to be, you know, all consumed by Ukraine and by the war, and that it's, its strategic focus its resource allocation is going to remain close to home. That isn't actually the case. You know, in discussing with various European capitals over the, the last few months, really, um, this discussion between security in the Euro-Atlantic and the Indo-Pacific region, as Maya mentioned, those are really seen as intrinsically connected now. Uh, and the limitless partnership um, between Xi and Putin has only helped foster that image um, even even further uh, in the minds of Europeans. So, you know, if anything, I think this has really caused a reflection as to how Europe can maintain some sort of a, a constructive role in both regions. Obviously, there will be a different emphasis on, on Euro-Atlantic region than there is in Indo-Pacific, but this is by no means, um, I think, the end of, of Europe's interest across the other side of the world. Just on that point, in terms of interest on the other side of the world, I think Taiwan was mentioned earlier. I mean, that is probably is the most difficult test, of, one of the most difficult tests of uh, European willingness to be much more active in the Indo-Pacific. Where is the EU on Taiwan and where is also the UK? Is there significant differences among European countries on Taiwan? So I think overall, everybody um, maintains you know, the, a similar approach in that they have a one China policy, um, which recognizes uh, Beijing and the PRC as the sole legal government of China. But I think the official position is that um, they support the status quo or uh, and or a peaceful resolution uh, of the differences across the Taiwan Strait. I think that's how the EU frames it. And that's how, you know, capitals in Europe uh, will frame it. And they have very clearly, I think, um, I- including parliaments, particularly as well in Europe, uh, responded to what they perceived as, you know, an 
escalation of tensions um, when uh, China conducted live fire drills uh, around Taiwan. You saw the European Parliament come out with quite a, a strong statement, for example, um, that this was uh, deeply problematic. You saw various um, European capitals say that that this was um, hugely concerning. And of course, more generally, I think the position has been that they reject the use uh, or threat of force to change the status quo across the strait. Having said that, there have also been some, I think, slightly confusing uh, messages emanating. Um, One, for example, is of the then incoming ambassador uh, of the EU to China, who said in an interview earlier this year that the EU does not advocate independence for Taiwan, uh, but instead advocates peaceful reunification, even though it rejected the, the threat or use of force. And that is, of course not quite the position of um, the EU. Um, That is very different to saying um, peaceful resolution of any differences versus peaceful reunification. So, you know, I think one thing at the moment is that we've seen this um, real kind of increase of a focus on Taiwan, of concern around the impact of a potential conflict and what that might mean for international supply chains, for the global economy, uh, given Taiwan's central position, and more generally, security dynamics in the region. But that also means that you have to get messaging right, and that you have to come out, I think, with a a consistent, clear position. Uh, And here, sometimes I think we struggle. and, And I think this, you know, We've seen this in the UK as well, for example, where Liz Truss um, earlier this year said that uh, the UK should learn the, and more generally, the West should learn the lesson of Ukraine and that Taiwan should be armed earlier to be able to withstand a conflict initiated by China. Um, That was then quickly walked back as a general position that the West should take uh, or as a lesson learned. But these kinds of comments, I think, you know, need, need careful consideration. And here, and particularly, I think, amongst like-minded countries, um, when it comes to, I think, sending a clear signal to Beijing, that's where consistency uh, in communication and clarity in communication really matters. Um, Because it is true that Taiwan has become a more important agenda point uh, in Europe. Um, You know, public reports in in the media note that um, the US and the UK are, for example, talking about potential contingency plans for a conflict across the Taiwan Strait, what the role of the UK or even Europe might look like and might be, that's all incredibly important. But again, consistency of messaging is key. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. And and I would just um, add to that, that, you know, when we talk about Europe's potential economic, political, or perhaps even in a limited sense, military role or response to a Taiwan contingency in the future, these discussions are slowly happening very much behind the scenes, but they are very, very nascent. And so I think we have to be wary about Um, putting too much emphasis on some of these conversations that are happening because we're really, really at the early stages of thinking about what Europe can do. And of course, that has become more complicated due to the war in Ukraine um, in terms of a capability and a resource perspective, if you're thinking about this in the short to medium term. But in the longer term, absolutely, Europe is looking at um, Taiwan differently. It's always looked at Taiwan as a like-minded actor, but of course, one that it was very, very careful 
about in the ways that Verla has already described. I think now European countries obviously see Taiwan as uh, something a little bit more shiny and interesting, um, uh, mainly because of TSMC's uh, semiconductor monopoly, but also I think because of China's more authoritarian turn and then linking the two very much, you know, support for a fellow democracy. So suddenly that like-mindedness has come to the fore um, in, in public ways. And I would also say that Europeans in general, when it comes to Taiwan, are interested in deepening some of the trade relationships um, between Taiwan. So looking at, for example, how Taiwan can fit into wider Indo-Pacific trading relationships or where European countries and Taiwan can find value add in certain industries beyond semiconductors. So think, for example, of green technology and the like. But that being said, there is, I think, still a limit to how Europeans want to engage with Taiwan on a political level. Um, this isn't a complete uh, revamp of, of those relationships. We see European parliamentarians visiting Taiwan a lot more. We see, for example, trade ministers visiting Taiwan. Um, but uh, we don't see a step beyond that yet to other high-level political visits of Taiwan. So there is still a recognition of there being a limit in that relationship in some ways and um, a careful approach to as so as not to perhaps rock the boat too much across across the strait. And maybe just to add one asp- one additional point to that, which is that, you know, countries like the UK and, and others in Europe have been engaging with Taiwan on trade for a very long time. They've had trade dialogues annually, and there's discussions now around investment, of course, in green technology. As Maya said, the UK, for example, is incredibly interested in offshore wind uh, technology in China and investing in that sector. But I think one key difference is that this now seems to be a problem for Beijing. And so I think there's a sense that that the limit to which countries can engage in and with Taiwan is being shifted and that that space is being narrowed. So you see now, you know, for example, I think more um, criticism coming out of um, Beijing around these dialogues or around parliamentary visits, whereas this has not necessarily been um, a, a massive shift uh, in any way towards, you know, any sort of sensitive diplomatic engagement. And so uh, I think that is an interesting dynamic as well that we've seen change on the part of China. Thank you. I want to shift the discussion a bit to focus on a separate, I guess, somewhat related topic, and that is uh, domestic politics in China. Specifically, how is Europe viewing the China domestically after the 20th Party Congress? And related to that, and probably more specific, how is Europe perceiving the uh, the recent COVID-19 protests in China? Is there a view that these protests are going to be a game changer in terms of Chinese domestic politics, or is it adding to concerns about human rights or other concerns that Europe already had with respect to China? I think Europe did look at the 20th Party Congress as an important milestone in what in trying to determine what type of actor China is going to be in the next five years. And so I think the signal was fully received in Europe that the 20th Party Congress was not a step towards um, democratization, rather, again, a further emphasis on the authoritarian nature of the party um, uh, and of the system in China itself. Uh, And I think a concern was broadly felt about, you know, how that should drive perhaps a reevaluation even more 
of certain elements of China policies across certain capitals. So, you know, we've heard that in the UK, um, we've heard that uh, in the EU, but also, of course, in the Netherlands, for example. I would, however, say that as German Chancellor Schultz's visit to China showed, there is still, as Verla started off in our discussion saying, this different interpretation of what's still possible in some ways. And that seems almost odd to say, as you've seen how Europe has reacted and European parliaments have reacted and European populations have, general populations have reacted to becoming more critical of China, you still have in certain capitals this element of, you know, we want a multipolar world, we don't want to be stuck in between the US and China, and we don't want to choose. And so we're going to find a third way out of this. Um, so despite the 20th Party Congress, and the signals that were sent at the 20th Party Congress, you still have some European leaders who who want to go down that third road and, and have that special role. And for German Chancellor Schultz to bring a trade delegation with him of high-level CEOs at a moment when Germany was discussing whether or not they should let um, a Chinese company take a, a stake in a port in Hamburg. I mean, these were very strange and almost contradictory signals to send both to China, but also to the US and to, to other European actors as well. So I think there has been a little bit of a muddling of that narrative and muddling of that messaging in recent months. On the COVID-19 protests in China and how this is being viewed, I think everyone is in watching mode at the moment uh, and, and no one's really, I think, in any position to draw any major conclusions uh, right now or, or have any specific expectations on how this is going to go. I think it is clear, at least sitting in it here in Europe, that there is a level of discontent over COVID zero policy and how that has been um, uh, how that has been implemented. Um, but you know, beyond that, I think there isn't really any singular perspective in Europe that that currently leads the way uh, in predicting what this means for the wider country, and certainly what this means specifically in practice for you know the zero COVID policy and how that might be reformed looking ahead. If I can add to that, I, I agree. I would say that there is a danger, however, in Europe to try to mirror image what this would mean in Europe and what this would mean in China. And I think there is an element, perhaps, of wishful thinking at some point where perhaps some people would like to see this or interpret this in certain ways and potentially seeing it as either a color revolution or the first step towards an overthrow of the CCP and, and perhaps interpreting this as something more than it is. It's certainly not inconsequential. It's certainly not unimportant. It's certainly not unprecedented. It is of extreme, I think, um, political significance in China, but there is, I think, a danger in perhaps reading more into it than it actually is um, before we fully understand what's going on. And that's, I think, where where a careful balance needs to be made in terms of analysis on the topic. Thank you both very much for this very, very fascinating discussion. I want to ask one final question to wrap up this discussion. So as we look at China-Europe relations moving forward, how do you think it might play out? And what are some of the key factors that you think might impact the relationship? So I think there is uh, there are a couple of things. First, I think there's a question of European strategic autonomy and whether or not we actually move towards that in um, questions related to defense and, and economy as well. And I think that will go a ways to clarifying how we view the relationship with China moving forward. Second of all, and I think this is perhaps in some ways more consequential because it will have 
perhaps a quicker impact and also um, be more direct is how a ever more forward-leaning United States uh, in terms of a U.S.-China policy is going to impact Europe and actually force Europe to make some very difficult decisions moving forward. And I think there has been a sense that I've felt in D.C. that the United States views Europe as not acting quick enough and not always in line with the United States when it comes to China. And so that the U.S. might just need to make more first steps that push Europe to be greater in line with with the United States when it comes to China. I think going to see more of of the likes of the CHIPS Act, for example, or the export controls on semiconductor and supercomputing technologies, that is just going to force Europe to, to have to make some decisions. I actually agree with that assessment as well. I think those are, are some major drivers. I think maybe a, a third driver um, of potential change in the European approach to China is China itself. If we see a more uh, collaborative, conciliatory China that seeks to make concessions or, or tries to patch up some difficult rough spots in the relationships with Europe, then I think that we'll see a Europe that is less inclined necessarily, even more so than it, than it currently is, uh, as Maya has outlined, to align itself with the United States. If we see a China that becomes more bellicose, more assertive on the international stage, really pushing its values um, in a way that I think Europeans um, feel uh, threatens, uh, you know, core principles in the international order and system, then I think that actually will do the opposite. And there, it'll be interesting to see how the European economic situation potentially limits that or not. I think that, you know, whilst as we've discussed, the economy and the potential for trade is obviously still an area that Europe really is interested in uh, as part of its relationship with China. I think at the same time, again, depending on how uh, Beijing behaves, will I think that sometimes might still shift the balance. Um, and that's something that we've found in, in our research as well in a, in a current project that we're doing on transatlantic approaches, for example, to the Indo-Pacific and, and to what extent we'll see alignment between the United States and Europe when it comes to core issues of economic and security interests in the region, particularly pertaining around China. So that will be really interesting. But, you know, when it comes to defense side, in any case, economic realities uh, are not something that you can just wish away. And so, you know, European defense engagement in the Indo-Pacific is something that will still be at a nascent stage. You know, generally speaking, of course, exceptions are the UK and, and France, but uh, it will be interesting to see whether there are other ways in which um, these countries can align. And also a quick shout out, of course, to Canada that just launched its Indo-Pacific strategy. So I think there will be more conversations to be had now across the uh, Atlantic in that respect. Thank you, Maya. And thank you, Rory, for such a fascinating discussion covering not only UK, but most of Europe, as well as EU and the differences among Europe with respect to China. Thank you again for joining me. Thank you, Bonnie. Thanks, Bonnie.